0: This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You're live with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We are Canada's number one app and mobile tech radio program, broadcasting on the way from Vancouver to Toronto. We have a great radio show for you today. We talk all about the world of uh, mobile tech and the world of apps. And apps are on everything now, not just smartphones. They're on TVs, they're in cars, computers. Anything digital probably has some sort of apps working on it. On today's program, we're going a little retro. We're going to go back to the uh, the olden days, the 80s software and apps. <laughs> Didn't call them apps, applications back applications. then. Applications. Commodore 64. Back in the day, you were either a Commodore or you were an Atari nerd.
1: Some people might have been Amiga nerds too at the time.
0: But Amiga was Commodore.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah I forgot about that. Yeah.
0: So cool. Atari had the Atari ST. Computer line that competed against Amiga. That's right. And what's interesting, uh, the head of uh, Commodore, he actually jumped ship and went over to Atari. He's right. the one that launched the Atari STs.: That's right. Yeah, very incestuous back then. Anyway, we've got a, get, uh, a great guest on the line. His name is, gonna, is, is not going to be. His name is Dave Zilly. and during the pandemic, he actually collected some of these and got them going.
1: He, I think he made it like abandoned because he got them early on in the pandemic.
0: Yeah, when everyone was cleaning out. Yeah, and then the towards, closets.
1: towards the end of the pandemic, people realize that these things have a lot
0: of value. So if you've got one of these things, like a VIC-20, Commodore 64, or Commodore 128, stay tuned in the show. You'll be surprised on how much these things are worth now. Yeah. And if you want to relive some of those glories, glory days, you don't have one of the old machines, we're going to tell you a way you can do it on your PC or Mac. Yep. And... Uh, We're going to talk about Plex, one of my favorite uh, apps for streaming my own movies and TV shows. And they've got a cool feature now that brings it all together, like all the streaming channels. So if you're wanting to know where Friends is or your favorite movie, it will actually link you off to the appropriate streaming service or let you know roughly when it's coming out and alert you when it does come out. That
1: sounds like a huge problem solved.
0: It is, like everything's so fragmented now. We talked about this on uh, on Get Connected, our sister show. Uh, you know, streaming is now cable. <laughs> yeah. When you look at the price. Okay, let's talk about some of the uh, the app and mobile news. And nothing's more mobile than rockets and and satellites. We've spoken before about Starlink, Elon Musk's internet satellite company. They've launched, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of low earth orbit satellites to provide high-speed internet access to rural communities. And we've talked to some of the folks we have had them on our show that use the service and it is life-changing.
1: Yeah. And it's currently being deployed in the Ukraine. Yes. Pretty widely, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's some competition happening. looks like Amazon's getting into the game, John.
1: Yeah. They signed a deal, a huge deal with three companies to launch a similar and competing internet service. Uh, in space, they're going to be 83 launches under Project Cooper over the next five years. 38 launches are with the United Launch Alliance, and 18 are with Arion Space. 12 launches are through a contract with Blue Origin, which is Amazon's space program.
0: Is that Amazon, or is that Jeff Bezos's? Well, it's owned by Jeff Bezos. Yeah, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Amazon. Yeah. So they're going to be launching a lot of these. How many satellites can there be up there, John?
1: Well, this is what we've talked about on the show before is like it gets crowded up there. Yeah. And astronomers don't like them because they get in the way of astronomy. Yes. So, yeah. And, And then we also had the problem recently where Starlink had a problem where they were trying to launch a bunch and they didn't quite make it to proper orbit.
0: Yeah. You win some, you lose some. Burned up in space. I wonder if it'll make it more competitive. I would hope so. Yeah, because in Canada now, you've got to pay about 750 bucks for the receiver. Yeah. And then it's about 140 bucks now a month. Yeah. It's a lot, but if you don't have high-speed internet access where you are, it's a godsend. But do you have to be a prime member <laughs> to get this one? They're going to deliver their packages via rocket. That's right. Uh John, we've talked a lot about wise technology, uh W Y Z E a lot of their cameras you love them because they're so inexpensive and yeah, good
1: yeah cuz you can get these on Amazon for as cheap as like 20 bucks sometimes on sale and uh, there's been a, 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 some news recently about the the V1 of the camera the very original one had an exploit where if you you can put an SD card in these, and they basically, instead of using the cloud, you store your video recordings locally,
0: which some people find very appealing.
1: Right, because you don't have to go into the internet. Yeah. Uh, with these devices, although they kind of—that's how you set them up. Um, but the problem was is that there was an exploit that is limited by the hardware, so they couldn't actually patch it. That allowed a hacker, and I'll put a big asterisk. There's a lot of things that had to go right for this hacker to get to this point um, access to your wise camera and allow you to browse and download these videos. So a lot of people use these cameras. And one of the reasons I use them is for home security purposes, but mostly for me to keep up, keep an eye on my cat when I'm at,
0: at it's a home cat camera, right? Yeah.
1: Right. So, but a lot of people use these to sort of point them at their kids in their crib, you know, in, in the, in their, in their baby's room or whatever. And, or just in your house, period. So the notion that a hacker could actually access these files, download them, and have video of you doing something, maybe you forget that you have a camera in your house, I don't know. Yeah. But they didn't disclose this exploit for a long time. And uh, one of these security companies had discovered this exploit, and they didn't, they called Wise out on it, and nothing ever came out for like two years.
0: So, but you've got camera, you've got these cameras in your house. Are you yeah. concerned that people well, are spying on your cat?
1: No, the the V1 cameras that I have are, I use them on my 3D printers. Okay. I'm not too worried
0: about oh, it. Oh, just to see like, because when you're 3D printing something, it can take hours or days. Right. And you just have a camera pointed at it so you can check in and make sure it's not burning the house down. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So for me, I'm not worried about that. Um, and also they're only powered on when the 3D printer is powered on. Okay. So... so. That, that's fine. But I do have other cameras for other purposes, but they're newer cameras and the exploit has been patched. The concerning part here is that they didn't disclose this exploit existed for so long. And they basically gave consumers no other option other than upgrading to their cam- their cameras to fix this problem. Not a really good look for this company.
0: So what are people to do if they've got these these affected cameras? <laughs> well, not, not much?
1: The, there's not much you can do. I mean, you either decommission them for something more less invasive or you know concerning, yeah. like I do, having it pointed to my 3D printers, um, or you throw them out
0: or recycle them. But I guess they were so cheap to begin with, right? Like, how much did you pay for them?
1: Well, th- this is this is the problem, right? Like, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Right. When you're buying like a hundred or hundred and fifty dollar version of a very similar competing product you're getting a little bit better privacy and software protocols. Yeah,
0: the company behind it is spending a lot of money to make sure that it's working properly. There's cloud services, the whole security aspect, like, and getting all the patches and updates for that.
1: Yeah, so
0: it's a bit unfortunate, but it is what it is. We're gonna have to take a break. We're gonna go back in time, back to the eighties and and talk about the good old VIC-20s and Commodore 64s and. And how you can actually relive those glory days. Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. Kind of excited about this next segment. We we love talking a lot about retro tech. You know, I think we, we entered into the tech world during the, I call it the golden age, when it just kind of first started bubbling up from a consumer perspective.
1: Yeah, back in the 80s when it was basically the first, you know, affordable consumer technology that you could take home computing devices, video game consoles, all that kind of stuff.
0: I was an Atari guy. Like, I had Atari 400, uh, Atari 130XE. These were, you know, the the basic computers. Then an Atari ST. I think you are in the Atari realm as well.
1: I was in the Atari realm. But we've got a guest today that was in the Commodore realm.
0: Which was kind of the competitor. You know how it was like kind of, it's like Mac... Windows now it was or, or Xbox and PlayStation. Yeah, it's yeah. it always comes down to two, doesn't it? it does. uh, so back then it was Commodore and Atari, and we've got a, a cool guest. His name's Dave uh, Zilly. He's uh, on the line from Port Moody, British
2: Columbia. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thanks, John. What a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Yeah, so to be here. Uh, so we're gonna go back with you. You you were the you're like a Commodore man, uh, obviously. And maybe let's just talk a bit about the history of uh, Commodore. I mean, it started off from what I can remember with uh, the VIC-20, which was kind of their first, I guess, more successful entries into the the personal computer market.
2: Absolutely right. Uh, The VIC-20 was really one of the first widely, uh, widely available. You could buy it in retail stores. You could buy it at the Bay. You could buy it at Sears. Um, I think one of the big reasons why Commodore was so successful with these computers is that they, they sold them through not just through your computer hobby shop, but they sold them. I I know I bought my Commodore 64 when I was 12 um, at the Bay. Um, And uh, it just really made it very accessible. (laughs) Do you remember how much the VIC-20 was when it launched? I remember
1: there's something being uh, around it being very affordable, uh, we had the Timex Sinclair, which was the $99 computer, but yeah. I think the VIC-20 was a little bit more horsepower and not much more money.
2: Yeah, that's right. I, I think you can't quote me on this, but you're probably looking around maybe the 299 mark or something like that for the VIC-20. That,
1: that seems uh, high think, now,
2: but... Y- yes. But, I mean, at the time,
1: there was nothing else like it.
0: No. Like, if you wanted to get into compute, you couldn't even afford to, really. No. No, Um, And the VIC-20, it was basically, it just looked like a a thick keyboard because everything was in there. And it hooked up to a TV, correct?
2: That's right. That's right. Your VIC-20 would connect to your standard TV. It's it's made to connect just like an Atari or any video game console at the time. Uh, and of course, Commodore also had their own uh, series of peripheral devices like monitors and printers and things like that, which I think was another reason why the line of com- Commodore computers was so successful and so popular. It's because they really had their own ecosystem and they were all relatively affordable. I mean, still expensive by t- in today's dollars, but but relatively affordable.
1: I honestly think that's why I went with Atari because it was just a little bit cheaper at the time. But- yeah. I will give Commodore they had some pretty nice looking peripherals the 1702 monitor Dave as you know uh, I still have one
0: of course you do Yes,
1: because it's a really great monitor for plugging almost any kind of content into yeah it's a great CRT screen and I still can't believe it's you know I don't know how it's like probably close to 40 years old and it still
0: works so so Dave uh, during the pandemic you you've uh, I guess built up your collection of some of these Commodore computers
2: I did, I did, and uh, I, I should also acknowledge um, an anniversary. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Commodore 64. It was released in August of 1982. Oh my god! Almost as old as Mike's radio program. Yeah, um, <laughs> getting there, right? Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if you reviewed the Commodore 64 in on one of those early thanks, shows. Thanks, thanks,
0: <laughs> thanks, Dave. So, uh, right. how many, like, how many Commodore computers do you have now?
2: Yeah, good question. So during the course of the pandemic, um, I acquired a, a couple, a two a two Commodore sixty fours, a, a Commodore one twenty eight, which was sort of the successor to the sixty four, as well as a Vic twenty, um, and, and they're all in, in 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 perfect working condition. I had to do a little bit of work on them to get them uh, running perfectly, um, but they're sitting right beside me here in my little museum, uh, and and uh, I do get a lot of enjoyment out of them um they what i'll say is uh, during uh, uh during the course of the pandemic of course we all had you know extra time on our hands and to experience our hobbies and i started to so i went out and was looking for just to to kill some time, but also to really rekindle my love of, of the Commodore wanting to acquire new hardware. And you started to see many postings to marketplace and places like marketplace and Craigslist and those usual sort of places during that time. And I found at the beginning of the pandemic, there were more and more of these things being posted, but as time went on, it turns out that I wasn't the only one interested. Um, the equipment is, is much harder to find nowadays. So I feel lucky to have picked up what I did during that time do you, do you think it was people just like spring cleaning because they had lots of extra
1: time around the house and clearing out those closets and then maybe other people like yourself was like hey this is a good time to get into it
2: i i absolutely do feel that that's the case i know i did a lot of spring cleaning in my basement got rid of a lot of stuff over the period of time over the, the course of the pandemic um but what i'll tell everybody out there you know listening i would tell you if you had one of these machines back in the day and maybe you still do if you've got it in your closet um if you have one around somebody will pay you for it uh whether it's in perfect working condition or not um they're becoming the original hardware is becoming more and more difficult to find and to source and and i think there are a lot of people like my my motivation is not to um to make money or to hoard this stuff to sell it it's actually to preserve it um and and, and to make sure that 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 it continues these computers continue to run um and and to hopefully pass them uh, down to the the next generation potentially so that's what gets me really excited one of the things we you and i talked about and i know mike and
1: i have talked about this before too is even if you don't play with it and use it every day just knowing you have it on your shelf yeah it's hoarding well
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're a tech hoarder
1: yeah but when you walk past it in your house you're like Oh, that's awesome. Like it's just like it makes you feel good about having this part of your nostalgic history Mm -hmm. and knowing that if you want to, you could turn it on and you can go and play your favorite game.
2: No, you're, you're absolutely right, John. It gives me really good feeling. There's the connection to your childhood. And, and, you know, when we were teenagers is when I know I think you and I were really heavily into using our microcomputers uh, uh, and I'm sure Mike was too during that time, but there's, there's that component of it, just feeling the comfort. I just turned my head and I see it here, but, but um, w- one of the things that has really, um, has really sort of brought things full circle to, to connect, uh, bring merry old technology to new technology. Um, is that uh, similar to, to the pie tracks that John talked about a few times uh, on your show um, for his Vectrex system, there are many new hardware devices and peripherals that you can connect to the original hardware to make it do new things and to and, and, to, and, to, and to make it do some of the old things, but to do them in, in a way that's much easier. Uh, for example, uh, you can take a, just similar to the PyTrex device, you can take a, a device that you s- plug an SD card into and, and you interface it to the original hardware, and it presents itself to your original computer. Computer as if it's say a disk drive, um, and and what that means is you can put all of the software, all the games that you used to load off of those flimsy floppy disks that are unreliable that we're all a lot of us are familiar with from the day. Um, you can load everything from from a micro SD card, but the original hardware thinks that it's an actual an actual disk drive and it's just a really great way of being able to get all that old software um, and the new software for that matter onto those old computers, which is just really, really fun. And some of those games came like on eight floppy disks. That's
1: right. Does Does it take the same amount of time to use the SD card than it did to actually like do the disk swap?
2: Yeah. You know what? That's a very good question. Um, some games a lot of games have actually been refactored um the date discs have been consolidated to like new formats where you don't have to worry about the notion of, of whether it's virtually or physically swapping discs but in some cases you do have to still mess with with <laughs> with switching discs and 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 there are switches on these devices to to allow you to to virtually swap disks' <laughs> uh, it's, it's really quite yeah, it's really quite quite amazing there, there's a massive community out there of people who who as you wouldn't be surprised that the people that 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 are really really into curating these collections and just making everything as accessible as it's ever been before
0: we're talking with uh, dave zilly he is a uh... A retro computer nerd, kind of like us, John. We're talking kind of about the Commodore world. He's just like us. He, okay, he is us, yes. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to take a break. Dave, if you don't mind, I just want to get you to hang on the line because we're just going to explore this uh, a little bit more because uh, I just love going back uh, sometimes. You're listening to uh, one of your favorite uh, tech programs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike and John here. We're, uh, we're going back in time. On uh, today's uh, program, doing a little bit of uh, retro reminiscing. Uh, you know, we said earlier, John and I came from the Atari world back in the uh, the day. We've got Dave Zilli on the line. He's more on the Commodore side. So much like there always comes down to two, right? Uh, you know, nowadays it's Windows and Mac. Uh, you look at the video game uh, area, it's like Xbox versus PlayStation. Back in the day, it was Commodore versus Atari. And so, Dave, you were the Commodore man. We've been talking about how you're collecting uh, some of these uh, during the pandemic. How, how much were you paying for these, you know, computers like the VIC-20 or the, the Commodore 64? Mm-hmm.
2: That's really, really good question. So uh, early on in the, I'm really going back almost exactly two years ago when I, I I think I, I think I made three big scores uh, during the course of the pandemic. Um, The first uh, big score was a a Commodore 64, a a disc drive, a bunch of peripherals, discs, software, a whole sort of grab bag of stuff. I think I picked that up for about 200, just over $200 at the time. That's pretty good. Yes, indeed, I, I agree. Uh, it, it seemed it even seemed reasonable at the time. Uh, that same package, uh, I've seen that now for three or four times that amount. You're not going to. Everything is. Uh, everything has because the the, the supply has decreased, uh, and I think the demand has increased. Generally speaking, that prices uh, on the used market have gone up considerably.
1: So one of the things you mentioned and is probably a f- contributing factor for the desire and demand for the this- hardware is the fact that people are still making
2: programs for this software or for these computers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and we'll talk a little bit about, you don't, fortunately, you don't need original hardware to, to be able to experience that new software that you're talking about, but I'll tell you. There's there's nothing more satisfying for someone like me, uh, and uh, and I know you guys would get the same feeling of downloading a new game for your 40 year old computer in the year 2022 and firing it up and playing it on original hardware with an original joystick and an original monitor. There's really no greater feeling than that. In my, how sad is that? So
0: you're talking about you're talking about having your old Commodore 64, which you've got up and going. You've got the you know, the old Commodore monitor, the joystick, uh, and you've got the little device that will let you uh, run software off like little SD cards now. You don't have to put the floppy in. You can get these uh, these games and software programs off the internet. And there's this whole community now making new
2: software for them. Is there any good stuff? Oh, absolutely, there is. And and you nailed that scenario spot on, Mike, in terms of the setup there. So you've got, um, just to name a couple of titles, There there are probably – Uh, I would say every day there's a new game or software title released for the Commodore 64 still today, which is amazing. And I would say about 10% of those releases are what I would call like A-list games, games that are amongst the best quality we've ever seen on on the Commodore 64. So it's
1: it's not just a bunch of Flappy Bird clones or anything. That's right.
2: That's right. And you get those, don't get me wrong. And there's a whole bunch of like Wordle clones and things like that that were released that are really just sort of basic programs that um have come out like so those the the, you include those in in the releases that you see every week but those really top-notch titles one that will excite john and and i don't know if mike's a big star wars guy or not but um empire there's a a remake uh there was an atari console game um called empire it it was the empire strikes back game for the atari console
0: i remember it yes
2: and, and I know it's a very famous very well, well known title uh, and there's a remake of Empire Strike Back for the Commodore 64 that's just about to be released that enhances those graphics tremendously and it has parallax scrolling effects some of those visuals we never ever thought we would see on a Commodore 64 and how are,
0: um, they, how are they doing that is it because they've got more memory on the SD card is that it or just because of all the programming knowledge we have now they're able to get better
2: Spot on. It's exactly the latter there, Mike. It's the programming. It's it's the fact that they're using new computers, like d- development on a modern PC, development tools on a modern PC, um, to allow them to use techniques that really w- will, will squeeze every single ounce of energy out of, or of power, I guess, out of your Commodore 64.
1: And they're, and, not, they're not having to code it in like assembly language or binary, binary. or
2: whatever they had to do back in the day. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and just another example of interest. I'm sure Mike popped a lot of quarters into Donkey Kong back in the Oh, day. my favorite. That was
0: my favorite. Yes. <laughs> you nailed me. Awesome.
2: Awesome. And so the Don- so there was a version of Donkey Kong released in 1984, I believe, for the Commodore 64. It was actually released on all of the 8-bit platforms back then. So you saw Donkey Kong on all those all those the Atari's and the Apple IIs and all that. The version of donkey kong we had on the 64 was really good but it was maybe 70 percent what you see in the arcade version it wasn't perfect but it was we were darn happy with it right <laughs> back you know back in the day but i i and i remember distinctly remember a, 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 a classmate in in high school like grade 8 ish around that time um who he came up to me and he said Dave, Dave, do you think uh, we're ever going to see arcade quality software on the Commodore 64? Do you think it can make something that's as good as what we have in the arcade, you know, back in 1984? And I said, you know what, I, I think, I, I think so. I believe the computer is capable of it. And I was really just blowing smoke because, you know, I didn't really know. <laughs> right. But, but fast forward to about 2015, 2016, somebody took donkey kong and actually rewrote donkey kong on the commodore 64 and created an arcade perfect version of it um so you actually um thanks to modern computers and modern programming techniques um we see um a, a perfect version of donkey kong something i we really never thought was possible
0: can, can i nerd out here because i know the console versions uh, you know on those 8-bit uh, consoles and computers mm-hmm. uh they're always missing the pi factory level which right. is, i think the yes. fourth level because i guess it just didn't have the memory is the pi the pi level well, pi factory it's, level you it's, didn't it's no, it's okay. there.
2: It, it is there that's that's a very good question how far we
0: how far we've come guys how <laughs> far we've come okay so we're we're talking all uh, with Dave Zilly. he uh, is reminiscing about the uh, the olden days back in the 80s the commodore 64s vic 20s and and how they're making new software for these old machines uh, so what if you don't have a commodore 64 like you can't get your hands on one of these old units you can still emulate it on your on your regular windows machine can't you
2: Uh, that's a wonderful question indeed you can and 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 you're absolutely right. It's harder and harder to find that original hardware. And in fact, I don't really recommend original hardware in general for the, for your typical person who just wants to go and relive the nostalgia and the experience and even to experience a lot of the newer games. So that's where emulation comes into play. Uh, and emulation is something that you can do very easily on your modern Windows or Mac computer or even on smartphone devices. Any, any device really is going to allow you to emulate somehow. And uh, there's a, in particular, there's a Commodore emulator called Vice, V-I-C-E, which you can Google. Um, I would be happy to provide any information to to your, your listeners and viewers as well. Uh, about that but device is a very easy to set up and configure emulator it's free um, and it, it's really considered to be the de facto emulator for uh, uh, for the Commodore it, it won't and not only will it emulate the 64 it'll also emulate any of those other Commodore computers the VIC-20 the 128 even going back to the old PET computer uh, which which some of you which you guys might remember as well even predated the VIC-20 and it's really easy to get up and running um, and you can find all the software as well there's a website um, happens to be called the csdb commodore scene database which can be searched for and all of the software that ever existed for the commodore 64 is available for download there and it's all legal uh, there's nothing you know copyright uh, that has any copyright or, or other restrictions associated with it anymore so it's uh, really really exciting
0: dave I-, I gotta thank you for coming on the program you've uh Got us excited again about the past. <laughs> I think we live too much in the retro years there, John, sometimes. But it's always great to see where we've come from when it comes to technology and uh, how far we've uh, made it ahead. And, and and still, people are still interested in making software for these uh, old machines. Dave, thanks for joining us. Oh,
2: My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. When we come back from the break, more Tech to Talk. Stay tuned.
0: You're back with the program, Mike and John here. I want to talk about one of my favorite uh, apps that I use every day for streaming all my content, Plex. I know John you use it as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. I like to get from one computer to another computer very easily and Plex makes it easy.
0: Uh and you can use it uh, you know a bunch of different ways. I've actually got a, a server set up in my home so I can actually check out all my content on the, the road. Uh, but we've got uh, a great guest on the line. We've got Jason Williams from Plex.
3: Tell us uh, a little bit more. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me, guys. I'd love to kind of tell you about some of the features uh, that we have rolling out and um, even some of the capabilities uh, that we have already today that most of our users are uh, aware of. But for those who aren't, as mentioned, Plex is a, uh, a software solution, but solves, we hope, we think several different problems. Um, we were kind of born out of the days where people had massive, you know, DVDs laying around in their living rooms. Uh, obviously, that was not the ideal situation for both space and then access. As you guys mentioned, um, you know, the media server itself, which is one of the components that Plex has to offer, uh, you can, you know, put all of, copy all of your DVDs and. Um, DVR content, we also offer like TV tuner support so you can record content and store it on a library, then through our client applications, whether it's mobile, TV, game consoles, almost anything with a screen, including web, uh, you can then stream that content uh, to your device. We now have the ability in Plex for you to hopefully get rid of some of the streaming struggle we have in the fragmented market today, so... Now on Plex, we'll talk about these more in detail if you like, but we have being able to search for anything uh, within the known media verse, as we call it, which means that you can search for a movie that's not out yet or a movie that's exclusively available for Netflix. Uh, We can show you where to watch it, release dates, allow you to watch the trailer, all of the things, and then add that to a universal watch list.
0: So you've got that... um... And, you know, I talked about setting up my own Plex server and stuff. Uh, You know, obviously, I'm a little bit nerdy and techie, uh, and it allows me to to check out my own media. But uh, like you were saying, you guys offer uh, thousands of uh, free TV shows and and movies. And now with this, uh, I guess, universal streaming uh, watch list, uh, you you mentioned I could just type in, um, like, uh, The Boys, which is a a popular show on Amazon, and it would be able to find that for me.
3: Uh, You know, it's probably worth talking a little bit about, you know, what – fundamentally plex believes in and we just believe that we have an opportunity to offer the best solution for movies and tv show fans and we've seen uh, as the market has grown the fragmentation of hey you you may be in a conversation with someone and probably within the first two minutes one of the questions is going to come up is hey what what shows are you watching or what movies have you seen that were good the follow-up question is always well where are you watching what service is that on we want to kind of help that situation. For instance, I know where the boys uh, is airing and I know that's an Amazon original, but if someone hears the boys is a great show, how do they find out You know that it's on Amazon? You go in, you search for the boys. We'll show you that it's on Amazon. If it were available in other services, we'll show you that as well. And we'll show you what's requires a subscription or you know what is a purchase. Um, and then, yeah, you can add that to your watch list. And if, you know, the boys being exclusive may not be the best example, but there is a large volume of content that moves between services today, right? So you may be interested in find something on Netflix that you like, add it to your watch list on Netflix, but then a month later, it's no longer available on Netflix. It's actually now available on Amazon Prime, and that watch list ad didn't really do you any good. <laughs> so uh, for us, you're adding the title to your watch list, not the service <laughs> And we're not confined to a service. So if you go back a year later, even if it's not on the original service that it was on at the time, we'll show you where you can actually watch it.
1: Now, the curveball question is, how does this function in Canada? Because we don't have like Hulu and some of the more proprietary newer studio um,
3: services. We've got you covered. We just got got TV last year. Yeah, I guarantee you all the services that you're aware of in Canada and probably a ton you're not even aware of are in this list and it is all regional. So if you're in Canada and you're using the Plex app, we'll show you what's available in your region.
1: Because I think that's that's like the killer functionality here because I know Mike and I always look for stuff and we can't find it because it's not available in, on some service in Canada yeah. that we can find. But there's no good one place to go to get all that information.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We, Plex has always been, uh, from day one, an uh, internationally used app, right? I mean, we're global. Uh, our, because we started as a software solution and a media server, um, there were no boundaries at the time. And we always wanted to maintain being a, a global application. So almost every feature we roll out, we are looking at the global marketplace as a whole. And even our own employee base, uh, you know, over 50% of our employees are you know, work outside of the
0: U.S. We're talking with Jason Williams uh, from Plex, uh, kind of a a universal streaming app, really. Uh, They've got uh, thousands of their own uh, shows and movies uh, they make available. Uh, You can also serve up your own content uh, on there. Uh, And now they've got uh, a universal watch list. So uh, if you are looking for a show, and, you know, I think of ones like uh, uh, Friends or Seinfeld, where are they now streaming? They kind of move around all all, all over the place. So now you could just basically search for that in Plex it'll come up and tell you what streaming services that's available on and you can click on it and it will take you right to that page, correct?
3: That, that's correct. And so it's important to understand too, this works on mobile. So one scenario is you're in the movie theater and you're getting ready to see your feature film and you're sitting through the trailers like, oh, I can't wait to see that movie. Even the trailer comes out, You open up your phone, do a search for it in Plex, you add it to your watch list, you've set it, forget it, enjoy the film. You know, six months later, you're at your TV and it's now available for streaming on some service or even from one of your libraries. uh, You'll actually be able to see it in Plex and uh, just play it right there.
0: Making it a little bit easier to find the content uh, through the streaming services. I want to thank you for joining us today, Jason.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: And again, the app Plex available pretty well on every platform you can think of. iOS, Android, all the... um, uh, gaming consoles uh, as well you name it it's uh, it's probably there when we come back from the break more tech to talk stay tuned you are back with the app show Mike and John here don't forget to listen to our sister show the one that started it all one of the uh, biggest and most popular tech radio shows in Canada Get Connected airs across the country every Saturday and uh, through the weekend if you want to listen to the podcast version go to our website getconnectedmedia.com
1: We've got a pretty great show this week too.
0: Yeah, it was it was interesting. We have uh, Rain Maida, He's uh, the man behind Our Lady Peace, a very popular Canadian rock band. Yeah,
1: and his new tour that has a lot of tech in in
0: it—holograms, people like Ray Kurzweil, who's like a futurist—that uh, will be integrated into their new upcoming concert tour. It's it's not even. It's like more than a concert. And you can an NFT just by for buying a ticket. Crazy. Yeah. Again. Get Connected. You can go to our website at getconnectedmedia.com. We've got our podcasts uh, up there as well as uh, tons of great content and videos. And don't forget to visit our YouTube channel as well, the Get Connected uh, YouTube channel. Like and subscribe. I want to thank John and Robin who helped put uh, the shows together. We'll see you again next time.